I watched all of Shadow and Bone on Netflix. <laughs> of course you did. Um, I didn't read the books. I heard about them um, back when I was still on Tumblr a lot um, and the Six of Crows. I heard about them a lot and people kept telling me to read it, but I just never got around to it. But after that, I might. Did you look? I mean, it was good. Because the show was pretty good. And I've seen a couple of um, TikToks comparing the book and the books and the show. And it, it's pretty good. Well, good. I also. <laughs> I also spent. I also spent. Um. I've spent the past, like, two, three days watching, um, the new season of The Circle. (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) this one is better than last season. I normally don't watch shows like that, but I love drama that does not involve me. Yes. I don't like being in the drama. I love hearing about it, though. Oh, my God. That's that's one of the reasons why I semi got into um, Rain while my grandmother was here because the drama was just what is Rain? Rain? Oh my gosh! Have you not? It's it's a really old show. Well, not really old, but okay. So it's about Mary, Queen of Scots, and her reign. Oh, Rain! Rain! Okay, I was thinking like like Rain, rain? like the like rain fall down. A I N? No, not Rain. Rain. Oh my god! I love Adelaide Kane. I think she is. Gorgeous. I love almost every, almost everyone in the show. On a different note, I got a book that's just, like, full of origami um, <gasps> instructions, and it's got really pretty paper in the back, and I was so excited because I'm, like, I still have these little mm-hmm. origami bunnies that I made and spray-painted, and I don't know. I just feel like I need another hobby. What's another hobby, you know? But I figured origami is something, like, nice, and I can just make stuff. Yeah. But also, paper can be bad for the environment. Just get the eco-friendly paper. I'll just, yeah, I'll just do that. And then I can, like, recycle anything that doesn't work out. And what does work out, I can, like, gift it to people. Yeah. And when you get really good at it, you can do, like, the really tiny origamis. Yeah. Because there's some really, really, really detailed things in there that are going to take me (laughs) months to learn, probably. Yes. Yes. Yes, but you know, it's something new to learn, and it's going to be fun, and you can have little gifts for everyone. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, you could you can use them as, like, tags for gifts. I can. That's super That'd be cute. cute. See, we're uh, full of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, in case you all don't know who we are, I'm Rachel, and that is my best friend, Grace. And I am Grace, and that is my vague acquaintance, Rachel. <laughs> vague acquaintance of what 17 years now 16 Uh, years 17 years it's gonna be 17 yeah yeah vague acquaintance of 17 acquaintance of 17 years it takes me a really long time to warm up to people um and then there's me i know you then there's me i know you for two minutes you're my best friend (laughs) What was your name again? <laughs> Geraldine. That's not a bad name. It's not. I do like it. Can I call you Jerry? God, no. I dated a Jerry. <laughs> no. Oh, fuck yeah. I'm at like a fem- in a female Jerry way. I didn't mean like a... <laughs> no. Female Jerry and male Jerry are two completely different concepts. See, but because I've never met a female Jerry other than myself, of course, I can't reference... <laughs> Can I call you... Call me Dean. Yeah, I was going to say, can I call you Dean? 
<laughs> yes, I will I'm, take. I'm tea. the dean in this situation. What yes. are we talking about? I don't know. No, you're the Castiel in this situation, Grace. You know this. I don't know who the dean is. Is but... it because of the gay thing? <laughs> <laughs> no, that would still be dean. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Okay. okay. I'm not even I'm not even drunk. I just <laughs> I've not had anything to drink. Okay, let's get into this. This week we are in um Craig, Alaska. Fun place, guys. Craig. Craig. I don't know why I feel the need to say it like that. But also I find it uh, very interesting that you say Craig and I'm like I'm no, I say over Craig. Here. Okay, I was I like, it's Craig. Craig. I just, I just sometimes feel the need to say Craig. Craig instead of Craig. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because some people say their names that way. Yeah. It's wrong, but it's, they say it that way. Um, so, my sources for history are Explore North and Wikipedia. There was a, it, this is so short my sort my story is also very short oh good because mine is long for this reason um there's not a lot Mm -hmm. of history for this town it's a little Um, small town a little fishing town it is a very small town (laughs) okay the history for (laughs) like i said the history is super short one of the shortest i found which i was surprised by Uh, Craig is the largest town on Prince of Wales Island. The Tlingit and Haida peoples have historically utilized the area around Craig for its resources, and the area was a temporary fishing camp used for gathering herring. I super appreciate that you found native information. Okay, there is actually a lot that I didn't find until after I wrote my story, but I'll, I'll get there. Um... Okay. Craig was named after Craig Miller, who established a fish saltery on nearby Fish Egg Island in 1907 with the assistance of the local Haida natives who had moved onto Prince of Wales Island after being driven from their home starting in the 18th century. Between 1908 and 1911, Craig Miller constructed the Lindenberger Packing Company and Cold Storage Plant at the um, where Craig is now. Mm-hmm. In 1912, a post office, school, sawmill, and a salmon cannery were constructed. He also constructed a cold storage plant and packing company at the where Craig is now, and in 1922, helped incorporate the city. The population grew due to the commercial fishing industry, and in the 1930s, there was a record number of pink salmon runs brought, like, it brought even more settlers. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the salmon population was depleted, which led to a collapse in the fishing industry around the 1950s. In Mm -hmm. 1972, a large sawmill was established nearby, which helped keep the people in the area employed and i guess the fish population replenished itself because along with the timber industry today craig relies on commercial fishing and fish processing and that's basically all i could find other than that there's not a lot to do other than hiking (laughs) there (laughs) and seeing beautiful views fishing apparently and fishing which sounds pretty nice and it does look absolutely beautiful there Mm -hmm. um yeah that was basically all i could find that's okay uh coincidentally when i was looking up my story my story happens to be on a wikipedia as part of the history for craig yes and i almost wrote it and then i was like that sounds familiar and i looked back at the episode list and i was like oh cut 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 okay well since that is the history of Craig, I'm going to go on with the rest of the history, which is my story that consists of the Colt Hurst family massacre and or the investor murders. So, my sources are InTouchWeekly.com, NewYorkDailyNews.com, NewYorkTimes.com, APNews.com, because you know you got to go into the alternative press, like, mm-hmm. that's where we are. AlaskaPublic.org, Unresolved.me, wonderful podcast, by the way. BellinghamHerald.com, Wikipedia.org. All I'm going to say is don't be prepared for a happy ending or any ending, because I am back with yet another unsolved murder. Those, I feel, are your specialty. They really are. We should rename it Miss Misfortunes and Unsolved. 
Um, yeah, I, I actually really, really hate how many unsolved I've done and how many unsolved murders I've done. And it's like, I feel like I have to continue through because I've done so much research on it. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I've tried to av- avoid them as much as possible. There are certain types of murders and crimes that I tend to avoid. Mm-hmm. So... But sometimes it's unavoidable when you get a certain area. When in the area, that's like the only thing you just... uh, Yeah. But this time it's your fault because you chose this. Yeah. I can't remember why I chose it. I was probably reading something and it didn't go into it. It was like, did you know there's a small town in Alaska where one of the most unsolved murders has taken place? And I was like, that sounds interesting. Awesome. Let's do it. It's a Rachel. It's it's, we're doing a Rachel. Yes. (laughs) We're doing a Rachel. Okay, so, starting with the basics, Mark Colthurst was a hard-working individual who was well-respected in the Blaine-Bellingham community of Washington State. He was, quote-unquote, a go-getter with dreams of retiring by 50. Same, but we all know it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> Colthurst even seemed to catch a bit of a break when he began fishing in his early 20s, and he was good at it. He was really good. Even managing to catch $105,000 worth of fish in one week of 1979. Wow. One week. By the time he was 27, he had managed to save up enough for an $850,000 58-foot fishing boat to begin his own business. Hmm. Imagine one year older than us and having that much money to pay for a boat. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So, and this is where our story actually begins. On September 5th, uh, 1982, a ship called the Investor pulled into Port of Craig, Alaska. The ship was owned by none other than Mark Colthurst. He was joined in this voyage in particular by his wife, Irene, who was 28, who was pregnant at the time. She had a little baby bundle of joy. Uh, his five-year-old daughter, Kimberly, and his four-year-old son, John, as well as four other crew members that the family knew and trusted from in and around their hometown of Blaine, Washington. These other members were Chris Heyman, who was 18, Dean Moon, and Jerome Keene, both of which were 19, and Mark's 19-year-old cousin, Michael Stewart. Over the course of the ship's voyage, prior to this stop in Craig, The ship and its crew had managed to drag in about 77,000 pounds of salmon that Mark was hoping to sell for roughly $30,000. Jeez. It does make me wonder whether he was practicing sustainable fishing. Um, True. Well, this was in 82, so... Unlikely. (laughs) Yeah. Unlikely and might not have been an actual thing. Due to Mark's personal policies about not keeping a ton of cash on board, as well as some technicalities with the Alaskan Department of Fish and Game temporarily ending salmon season Mm. until the following Monday, the crew was not able to collect payment for their haul for a few days, which of course uh, meant that they would have to stay in town for, you know, just a hot minute. After unloading the salmon that had been caught, the ship pulled into the dock and was tied off to two other ships also docked there. The Defiant and the Decade. These are wonderful names for ships, by the way. The Decade being owned by the brother of Mark's business partner, so super close to each other. And it was cool that they did this because in order to safely exit the ship, they actually needed to board the other two ships in order to reach the dock. Everyone then proceeded to disperse. Jerome and Dean went off to make some phone calls and to grab a drink, because why not? Mike and Chris left the ship, however, no one in Craig recalled seeing them that night, so it was entirely possible that they very quickly came back to the ship or just remained on board. And the Coldhorse family went out to celebrate Mark's 28th birthday at Ruth Ann's restaurant. Hmm. While the family was there, Mark wrote a check to a friend who was in the city, lending him $100 in order to pay for a meal. Then around 9.30, the family paid their own bill and headed back to the ship. This is confirmed by the fact that a crewman of the decade recalled seeing the family crossing their ship and seeing young John pop his head into the pilot house in order to say hello before the family turned in for the night. Due to some extensive partying on the other ships that night, this was the last time anyone aboard the investor was seen. 
Because as you do, you party when the salmon fishing season ends. Some people have their traditions. Yeah. Here in Kentucky, we get drunk when horses run for two minutes. So Valid. Around 6.30 the following morning, a crew member of the decade noticed that the investor was silently and slowly slipping away from the dock. He also noted that he could see a man who looked similar to Mark standing at the wheel of the pilot house of the investor. When he waved, the man responded back with a wave, as you do, and it was later discovered that the expensive tie-down lines that belonged to the investor were untied and left lying on the deck of the decade. Which is odd because these, again, were very expensive. Yeah. And for that reason, would typically be used over and over again. Yeah. It was also later reported that no one heard the engine of the ship start or running as the investor was slipping away. So this highly points to the theory that whoever was piloting the ship wanted the ship to, you know, just kind of slip away unnoticed. Yeah. Then around 6.45 that morning, the captain of the decade noticed a man standing on the deck of the investor as it was floating away. He, like his crewmen before, assumed that this was Mark and thought that he was simply taking his boat out to take advantage of the now-reopened salmon season. However, the captain was unable to make out exactly what this person looked like. He was just vaguely aware of what the man had been wearing, which appeared to be a black and red plaid wool coat, and that the man was similar build, like similarly built to Mark with light brown or blonde hair. Hmm. Then around 7.30, it was noted that the investor appeared to have set anchor in the bay along Fish Egg Island. Yeah. Yeah, Fish Egg Island. At some point during the day, like the following day, mm-hmm. the investor's skiff had been let off the boat and wound up and tied to the main dock of Craig. Okay. So the skiff is like the little like rescue boat that they have on. board yeah and this was confirmed by several locals who saw the skiff resting at the dock however despite the fact that this was definitely odd because the investor was now clear across the little canal between easter island and craig alaska no one put too much thought into it because someone from the crew could have just forgotten something yeah the following morning as the fog from the night was just kind of rolling away Several locals were slightly confused at the time to see the investor still sitting docked at Fish Egg Island. They had thought for sure that the ship would have sailed out with the rest of the ships in the harbor in order to finish the last salmon season of the year with a boom. Right. (laughs) Did not happen. Something else that the people of Craig didn't know is that Irene and her two children were due to fly out that day back to Washington. Ah. It's also important to note that apparently the young man who had sailed to the dock with the investor's skiff was seen purchasing two and a half gallons of gasoline and taking it back to the ship. Around four that day, smoke was seen coming from the direction of the investor. The Alaskan state troopers were called and informed of the fire, while crew members from nearby ships sailed towards the investor to help the crew. One ship called the casino passed by the investor's skiff as it was sailing away from the boat, and the crew member took note of a young man wearing a blue baseball cap, sailing the skiff towards Craig. When he arrived to the dock, this young man spoke with several people about getting help for the ship that was aflame, but somehow managed to slip away unnoticed amidst the chaos. The ship casino and its members finally made it to the investor, where they, along with locals, began trying to put the fire out over the course of several hours before the Alaskan state troopers arrived. They then worked several more hours, and with the help of the U.S. Coast Guard and some water pumps that were flown out, the fire was finally extinguished and the ship could be boarded by emergency personnel. It was then that four sets of human remains were found burned beyond recognition. Dang. Believing that this was an accidental fire, the four remain the four remains, the four sets of remains were sent to Anchorage in order to be identified and to determine cause of death, which to the surprise of everyone was not smoke inhalation. Murder. Murder. It was murder. Two of the bodies were determined to be Mark and Irene Colthurst both of whom showed signs of gunshots to the head prior to the fire outbreak. Oh. Which was suspected since it was determined by arson experts that the fire began in the living quarters at the front of the boat rather than at the rear of the boat where the diesel of the ship was stored. Oh, okay. 
And according to Mark's father, this $850,000 ship was designed not to burn. So any fire that occurred had to have been intentional. Ooh. Investors theorized that the fire was set as a cover-up to the crime. Easy, super easy to see that. But it goes a little bit more into that. Apparently, evidence points to the fact that whomever set fire to the ship initially tried to sink it first, since the seacocks had been opened once the ship had been anchored at the island. Oh. So, like, all those little windows at the bottom yeah. and all the, the, yeah, those were all just wide open. Oh, shit. However, when the ship work? was still there, no, oh, it didn't work. Sorry. No, it didn't work. Huh. <laughs> However, when the ship was still there the following day, the person who committed the crime likely decided to return and set the ship on fire using an accelerant to spread the flames quickly. I like how they just opened some windows and walked away and then they came back <laughs> the next day and they were like, oh, fuck. <laughs> what? I was trying to make this easy on myself. Dang. So much extra fucking work. <laughs> the ship was then pulled ashore in order to prevent it from sinking so that investigators could uh, thoroughly sift through the ashes for the remaining four victims. Bone fragments were discovered from at least three more bodies, all of which were sent to Alaska for analysis and identification. While all this was done, the other two remains were identified as five-year-old Kimberly, Kimberly, mm-hmm. Kimberly, and 19-year-old Mike, who was, of course, Mark's cousin. Yeah. Eventually, the three other sets of partial remains were confirmed to belong to Chris Heyman, Dean Moon, and Jerome Keen. The body of four-year-old John was never actually physically recovered. Mm. It is theorized that his body had been at the epicenter of the fire and that he had just been completely reduced to ash. Investors found aboard the ship a .223 Rugger rifle, which was initially thought of to be the murder weapon. However, bullet fragments that had been found were too damaged in order to positively confirm. It was later revealed that Mark and Irene had been shot with a 22 caliber firearm of some sort. Investors believe that since two of the five confirmed homicides were gunshot wounds, then it's reasonable to believe that all eight victims had been killed before the fire was started. And, of the bodies found, none showed any signs of carbon monoxide trapped in their lungs. Due to the state of the majority of the remains, however, it was difficult to confirm this theory. The hardest part of this investigation was trying to find the perpetrator. Initial media reports indicated that police were following leads involving the possibility of this being a drug-related crime or that it was a robbery. However, it was speculated that the killer really had a personal connection to one of the victims, so it was not drug-related. It is believed that the killer may have boarded the boat, gotten into an argument with one of the victims. The heated argument ended in the killer pulling out a gun and shooting the first victim. Being unable to stop for fear of witnesses, the killer then proceeded to shoot everyone else on the ship. They then may have stayed on the ship overnight while they gathered their thoughts before deciding to drift off into the harbor and later anchor the investor near Fish Egg Island. They then attempted to, like I said before, sink the ship by opening up the seacocks and leaving the ship for rising tide as the fog set in for the night. Nobody heard any gunshots? We get there. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's I believed- figured you would cover it, but I didn't. Uh... No, I we get there. It's believed that the killer then took the investor's skiff back to Craig. When they saw the following morning that the ship had not in fact sunk, they then panicked and decided to buy gasoline before returning to the ship. When the flames had begun, they then left aboard the same skiff that they have now gone back and forth a few times. Mm-hmm where they encountered members of the casino ship who mistook them for a member of the investor crew. Mm. The same thing then happened when they arrived to the dock, and they disappeared forever. However, this is only a theory by investigators. Yeah. At this point, investigators believe that the killer could have boarded another vessel in the area, possibly as part of a crew that had left for the last salmon fishing season. Which put a pause on the investigation, as most of what would have been prime suspects literally just up Worked and left. out at sea, yeah. yeah. Literally just gone. Over the next several months, investigators interviewed dozens of witnesses between Craig, Alaska and Bellingham, Washington, which is the area a lot of the fishermen and the crews come from. 
By November of 1982, the case had begun fading from the headlines. A $15,000 reward was offered thanks to um, many fishermen who wished to solve the crime. Yeah. Obviously fearing that the killer could be anyone they know on the fishing scene. Yeah, definitely valid fear. Very valid. It's also at this point that a police sketch is distributed across all the fishing vessels throughout the Pacific Northwest. While witness accounts were sort of kind of all different, investigators began to compile all of the information into one single profile. Yeah. The suspect was a young man in his 20s, standing between 5 foot 9 and 6 foot tall, with an average slim build. I don't know mm. what is average slim. <laughs> average average maybe like average weight for that size for like that height true but but slim but slim yeah they had long brown or dirty blonde hair a pock marked or slightly scarred complexion Mm. and glasses with rectangular lenses okay one of the initial theories is that of course one of (laughs) yes db cooper no is that one of the crew members could have been the killer. However, if all the bodies had been identified, then how? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a chance that they were also stuck on the boat. But then you would see evidence of that, right? Yeah, I would would think so, at least. It's not like they just, like, poured gasoline all over the boat, threw the the cans over, and then just were like, and then Mm -hmm. rode the boat to the dock. Right. Anyway, um, by 1983, leads on the case had completely dried up, which prompted investigators to try and bring interest to the case the following spring. Alaskan state troopers arrived in Washington state in March of 84 to remind the public that while the case was unsolved, the state of Alaska would not be forgetting what happened. They then began questioning several individuals who lived in the county that the victims also had lived in who had similar lifestyles with commercial fishing. A lot of them were suspects or persons of interest that investigators were unable to eliminate from what had become the now largest unsolved case in Alaskan history. A few months later, it had been determined that all eight of the people who occupied the ship investor were killed during the incidents that occurred in September of 82. So despite the fact that literally forensics said, yeah, all eight people are dead. Yeah. It took until September to actually legally pronounce all eight of them were dead. That's wild. This allowed investigators to rule out the theory of someone from aboard the ship committing the crime and focus building a case around an outside killer. Yeah, and that must have been hard, too, with all of the people that they had to go through, like, all of their backgrounds. I mean, the children obviously weren't the target. By the summer, the investigators were able to narrow down the suspects to three persons of interest and then within a month, down to one. And this was largely through circumstantial evidence and a lot of it. A lot of circus- circumstantial evidence. Which I'm assuming is why this case is still unsolved. <laughs> no. Mm. How, why would you assume that? On September 10th, 1984, the police announced that John Kenneth Peel was charged with the brutal murders that happened aboard the ship Investor. 24-year-old Peel, a Bellingham native like Mark, was officially taken into custody at 7.15 that Monday by Washington state authorities and set with a $1 million bail. Prosecutors also filed a motion to try and extradite Peel to Alaska in order to Mm -hmm. charge him and whatnot. Peel matched, matched the very vague description of the suspect that was released by authorities. Which was a compilation of (laughs) different, very different descriptions. Yeah. Between 5'9 and 6 feet tall, could have light brown hair, could have dark blonde hair. Could have pockmarks, could have scarring. Could have scars, Um, yeah. I mean, pockmarks are scarring, but... Yeah. Uh, Just picking the skin. Very common. Um, He also had apparently been familiar with the Coulthurst family, as well as the other crew members. Um... Also, he had been a crew member for Mark Colthurst aboard a previous ship between 1980 and 1981 during okay. that fishing season. It was also believed that, det- 
that the two's friendship had gone bad only months before the murders occurred when Colthurst had fired him. Ooh. And it was also theorized by investigators that Peel's possible motive for the murders was just simply out of revenge. However, Peel's lawyers were on top of it and argued that the two kept a friendship after Peel walked aboard another ship rather than Colthurst firing him. Mm. This was also backed up by extended members of the Colthurst family, oh. recalling that Mark and Irene had purchased a wedding gift for Peel's marriage after the supposed dismissal of Peel from the ship. Yeah, that's not really something you would do for someone you're not friends with anymore. No. It was also reported that apparently Colthurst and Peel had a brief encounter on the evening of the murders. Um, it's reported that Peel was seen interacting with the family while they had been dining at Ruth Ann's restaurant in Craig. Hmm. And for some reason, two investigators, this all implicated Peel in the murders. <laughs> But as you can tell, there's a lot of gaps in this narrative. So John Peel had no prior criminal history, which, you know, that's how most criminals start. So, okay, we'll let that slide. But also friends and family of both Peel and Coulter said it was literally impossible for Peel to have been the killer. He was described as friendly, outgoing, had a good sense of humor, and got along extremely well with Mark Coulthurst. Also, apparently, some witnesses weren't so sure that Peel was the man that they had seen. Hmm. I mean, if not even your witness is sure, it's a little... Yeah, and, and like, for sure, a lot of them outright said, no, he wasn't a guy. Oh. He, he wasn't a guy. What? He wasn't okay. the... He wasn't the guy. He wasn't the guy. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Peel's lawyers allege that during the preliminary hearings that the prosecutors had actually just intimidated multiple witnesses in order to testify against Peel hmm. in front of the grand jury. Ooh. This actually caused several jurors to feel that some tampering was done, and they began to put doubt into the minds of the public as to if Peel had actually committed the crime or not. Yeah. His lawyers also argued that there was discrepancy in the, in the transcript of one of Peel's police interviews. Ooh. It's also a little shady that there was a transcript submitted and not, like, audio along with it, because they did have audio recording devices, like tape recorders, that they, they so didn't. often, no, they did, they so often used it during interviews because they realized that a voice saying it is a lot better than someone writing what they heard. That's interesting. Yeah. So the transcript read, I'm scared, man, I'm scared. I can't believe the things I did in there. Hmm. However, according to Peel's lawyers, what Peel actually said was, I'm scared, man, I'm scared, I can't believe... The things you think I did in there. Ah, yes. See, that is... Mm. Yeah, so there's like a huge difference Yes. in those two lines. This next piece of evidence is actually what got me. So the witnesses who saw the man getting gasoline on the morning of the fire, it was actually Peel. Mm -hmm. However, the prosecution forgot to mention to the jury that only white gas residue had been found at the crime scene. So this, this this hinted at an accelerant being used and likely not gasoline since that would have left gas residue. Yeah. Not white gas residue such as kerosene. Okay. During most of the court proceedings, Peel could be seen wearing a mask or other disguises in order to protect his identity from the public. Gotcha. This was just, this was such a high profile case that his lawyers argued for his safety as well as his, his family's safety. Yeah. He needed something, in all honesty. The trial was scheduled to begin in January of 1986. However, before it could, there was a series of preliminary hearings to determine what could be used as evidence, and basically everything was out. But we're going to continue. During the hearings, Peel's lawyers filed several motions alleging misconduct on behalf of the persecution, as well as potentially destroying evidence by allowing the investor to sink about six miles off the coast of Craig while the ship was being towed back to Washington. 
No, they didn't. They did. With the ship sunk, they were unable to test for bullet holes, ballistics, or really anything that might have led to a possible second suspect. Oh my god. (laughs) Because of this, at the end of August in 1985, Judge Thomas Schultz agreed to dismiss the charges against Peel without prejudice. However, this only meant that Peel was excused based on the current evidence or lack there of evidence provided. If the prosecution was able to find more concrete and damning evidence, then he could be charged for the same crime. So, while he dismissed the case, the judge did not cancel the $1.1 million bond on Peel, which, thanks to family and friends holding fundraisers and putting together a real estate package, they were able to make meet. Wow. So, I feel bad for Mr. Peel at this point. They had absolutely... No, nothing on him at all. Not really, no. His freedom was, however, short-lived. By October of that year, the prosecutors had quickly pulled together a second round of charges and witnesses against Peel, and the second trial was began on January 13th, 1986. What ensued was basically a back-and-forth of witness testimonies, The prosecutor painted Peel as a revenge-hungry, scorned ex-employee slash friend, while Peel's lawyers pulled witnesses that discredit the prosecutor's witnesses. Like, (laughs) jeez. I almost wish that they had, like, video recordings of this, because this is, this is really, um... A lot. A lot. Peel's lawyers even proposed a new theory to the prosecutors. Could the murders have possibly been committed by a professional hitman? Apparently, one witness heard a series of explosive sounds once an hour for several hours in the early morning of September 6th. This, the lawyer argued, could have been consistent with someone holding the crew hostage and executing them one by one in order to get information out of Mark Colthurst. But for what? They also argued that the prosecutors did not delve into the rumors of Coulthurst being involved in the shipping of international drugs, which he argued included a large amount of cocaine, which had supposedly been transferred to another ship within 24 hours of the murder. Oh. Peel's lawyers also argued that one of the crewmen, Dean Moon, who was presumed dead aboard the ship, but who had not been identified through forensic evidence was still alive and while walking around San Francisco. So, the reason that this lawyer said that he had not been identified through forensic evidence, remember they only found three partial body remains the second time. Where's the fourth? He argued that Mr. Moon had been seen by two witnesses as recently as 1983, and this included one witness who was very familiar with Mr. Moon. Huh. This trial ultimately ended in August with a hung jury which, for those of you who don't know, because I didn't know, the jury is basically split, like, down the middle. Mm -hmm. This resulted in the case being brought back to the state where another trial was held, but ultimately ending with prosecutors admitting that there was no motive, no weapon, and no physical evidence pointing to John Peel being the murderer. Like, literally, the prosecutor said, we have nothing. Mm. How are you going to take someone to trial and say, we have nothing? I'm surprised that it was actually allowed to go to trial, considering the complete lack of evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Um, after four years of ho- pretty much house arrest, John Peel was acquitted of all charges filed against him. However, to this day, and with the most expensive trial held in Alaskan history at the cost of $2.2 million, the murders are unsolved and the state still believes that Peel was the murderer. In the following years after the trials, John Peel pulled together and filed a lawsuit in April of 1990. He and his lawyers seeked more than $150 million in damages to be paid out to Peel, his wife, his son, and his family and friends who put up their actual, like, property in order to obtain his bail. In the lawsuit, Peel also asked that the state continue their investigation into the murder of the Coulthurst family and the crew members. However, this fell on deaf ears as state officials still claim he is the killer and have no plans to move from that position. That's... I, I don't... Mm-hmm. I don't think that somebody who is guilty would say, keep looking into this. I think they would just be like, give me my fucking money. Right. And this is even more so proven by the fact that the lawsuit was settled in 1997 for $900,000 after an extreme back and forth between the state and Peel. 
So 900,000 is a lot less than 150 million. Yeah. Yeah. So honestly, I don't know what to think. Like, logically, he didn't do it because all of the evidence was circumstantial and just kind of led on by investigators after the fact. So that is the story of the Colthurst murders and the investor... What did I say? The investor murders? Well, how you feel about that? I don't know. Because if even, like, the family didn't think that he did it, didn't think he had anything to do with it. Right. It's very odd to me that the police would keep after him. Right. That's weird. Nothing I found straight up said why the police kept going after him, but they just kept going after him. I think sometimes when they like somebody for something, they just keep going with it. Even when evidence points points to the contrary. (laughs) To the contrary, Yeah. yeah. That's... Ugh, that's annoying. Mm. Yeah, but he is free. Um, unfortunately, the murders are not solved. So, well, pulled another Rachel. All <laughs> right. So when I was looking for sources uh, or for stories in the area, I was finding nothing. And of course. One of the only things that kept popping up was like Bigfoot. And we, <laughs> you've already covered Bigfoot. Yep. So I was like, can't do that. And then I ended up finding after I literally went 38 hours away, still in Alaska. Um, <laughs> Alaska's bigger <laughs> than we think. <laughs> it is very fucking large. So yeah, after I went uh, that far away and then I was going, I found a story, started going through it. Uh, I ended up finding like a bunch of other stuff like indigenous folklore and stuff like that, which I wish I could have covered instead because like it was really interesting stuff. Yeah. But I had already written my story. So you just wanted to follow um, through with it. Yeah. So I'm going to put some of that on my list so I can go back and cover it later. For sure. Um, on one of our mess episodes. So, um, today I'm covering the Alaska Triangle. Oh. Yeah. Like the Bermuda Triangle. Yes. So, my sources are discovery.com, Wikipedia, Wikipedia, distractify.com, legends of America, and top10s.net. And as well as links that I mention later in the story. Okay. So, we all know Bermuda Triangle, um, but pro- probably something you don't hear about a lot is the Alaska Triangle. Well, I've never heard of it. I hadn't either. I've heard of two other triangles, but I've never heard never of the heard Alaska of Triangle. Um, while the disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle are well known, um, what's so wild to me is that the amount of disappearances in the Alaska Triangle are so much higher but there oh is not a lot of information about it, and there are multiple reasons for that, which I'll get into later. The border of the Alaskan Triangle stretch for, stretches from Utkiakvik, um, formerly Barrow, Alaska, on the north coast to Anchorage to Juneau across the southern coast. The area also covers the northern region of the Barrow Mountain Range, meaning there are large areas of unexplored wilderness, including Ooh. forest, mountains, glaciers, tundras... Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I'm just imagining the number of less, like, lost hikers you have in no the idea. area. You have absolutely like, no idea. Whatever yeah. number you're thinking, no. Um, <laughs> no, it's bigger. <laughs> uh, which makes the hundreds of people who go missing in the area every year incredibly hard to find. Literally hundreds. In fact, mm-hmm. there have been over 16,000 people who have gone missing in the Triangle since 1988. Oh my god. That is 16,000 people in 33 years, which is an average of about 484 people a year, twice the national average. Yeah, that's that's quite a lot. It is a lot. And when you compare it to, like, the Bermuda Triangle, people don't usually go missing on their own. It's, it's Objects, like, planes, like boats, and boats planes. stuff like that, which makes sense because the Bermuda Triangle is mainly water. Yeah. The Alaskan Triangle first received widespread attention when U.S. House Majority Leader Hale Boggs, Alaska Congressman, Congressman Neil Begich, Russell Brown, and pilot Don Johns vanished somewhere between Anchorage and Juneau in 1972 while flying on a small private plane. 
this led to one of the country's largest ever search and rescue operations. It involved 40 military aircrafts, 50 oh civilian planes, and 39 days of searching 32,000 square miles. Wait, civilian planes, like, like commercial planes, or like no, the... I think more like, um... Like the, the two smaller, person like two people plane. planes. Okay. Yeah. But still 50 of those. Yeah, that's quite a lot. Nothing was ever found. No wreckage mm. or debris, no people, nothing. Okay. After this, Congress passed a law mandating that uh, the installation of emergency locator transmitters in all U.S. civilian aircraft. The only incident mentioned before this was back in 1950 when a military craft with 44 passengers disappeared. And afterwards, no trace once again. Mm-hmm. I almost covered this one specifically, but we can always go back to it. In 1986, Japan Airlines Flight 1628 came across three unidentified flying objects while traveling oh. from Iceland to Anchorage. According to the report, um, three UFOs chased the airplane through the Alaska Triangle, and people on board the plane said they saw flashing lights following them, moving quickly and disappearing and showing up again in an instant. Okay. There's a lot. Like, read through the Wikipedia page. It's a lot. Like, it could have been a whole story on its own, but I found this first. Okay. Yeah, so that's on the mess episodes. Yep. Um, In... 1990, a Cessna 340 carrying a pilot and four passengers vanished once again without a trace. One of the theories for how the planes have (laughs) never been found is that the planes were completely obliterated by the impact, or like they crashed somewhere and caused an avalanche uh, Mm -hmm. bearing the wreckage, or they crashed into a glacier, which have been known to have like large sort of chambers that sometimes can be as large as a building. (laughs) Or maybe a plane. And it's then, like the chambers found under the pyramids. Yes, it's like, who knows? And yeah. there's so many... Sometimes glaciers are like mazes, almost. Mm-hmm. So... So really, it's hard to... Yes. <laughs> impossible, almost. And then we get into the theories of the 16,000 people who've gone missing since 1988... So most of the time, it's assumed that they've succumbed to the elements since, like I said, there's a lot of unexplored wilderness and it's easy to get lost. I mean, there's a lot of space to cover. It's the, Basically, it's most of the state in this triangle. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that's, really, it's most of the state? It's a lot of the state. Like, if you look up the... I was going to say, I want to see a picture. Alaska Triangle. It is... A, okay, it's not, like, the whole state, but it's, like... At least half okay. of it, almost. It's almost okay. half of the state. It also covers part of part, Canada. It does. It, it there, Part of it is in Canada. But very quickly, we get into the odd theories, one of which is that Bigfoot is actually responsible. Like, Of course he yeah. is. Bigfoot sightings in the area are numerous, and there have been reports of Bigfoot nests, a Bigfoot skeleton, and unidentified hair samples, which are thought to belong to Bigfoot. I'm sorry, Bigfoot nests? Yes. Is Bigfoot a bird? No, but when you find, like, a fox den, some people call that a nest. Oh. Similar to that. So, the theory is basically that people are encroaching on Bigfoot territory, so... They kill and eat them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some theorize that it's not actually capital B Bigfoot, but Alaska's Bigfoot, what the Tlingit legends called the Kushtaka, which roughly translates to land otter man. Legends say, land yeah, which I, also, which I also could have covered. <laughs> Legends say that the creature appears to travelers in a form that they're unable to resist. So it's like a shapeshifter. And it's not in like a sexual way that they're unable to resist or anything like that. It's more like someone that they know. It's not like it's showing them like just sexy person or whatever. It's more often someone they know, like a family member or parent or child, something like that. But then I'm taken back to the episode of Supernatural where Dean's um, ideal mate is actually a guy who loves all the same music he does, loves the Impala, loves the same food he does. So I'm just, I'm hearing Bigfoot, the Alaskan Bigfoot there. Wasn't that a, um, a succubus? Yes, it was a succubus, yeah. 
or, or incubus incubus yeah whatever actually i think succubus is no it was a succubus because, because it yeah. was trying to seduce him and for a male it's a succubus because males are so often by female entities anyway um yes so it's more like a family member and it lures the victims to a nearby river where it tears them apart or turns them into another Krishtaka. And I kind of wish I'd found this legend before I had to go 38 hours away, like I said, because it's a lot more than just a creature that leads people to their deaths. And um, it can also be considered like possibly helpful or um, yeah. like is like a good entity in some stories that I found. Okay. There have also been theories of extraterrestrial activity, like I said, with the plane, and energy vortexes. Ooh, I love energy vortexes. So, <laughs> for people who don't know, energy vortexes are like swirling centers of energy that are concentrated in specific places where that energy is supposed to be intense. The energy It makes balls move uphill and la- <laughs> and ladders and brooms stand on the bristles, which is very easy to do. So, um the energy <laughs> radiates in a spiraling a like cone shape clockwise or counterclockwise creating positive or negative effects. And they're thought to affect humans in different physical, mental, and emotional ways. Mm -hmm. Positive vortexes are, you know, upward spirals uh, in a clockward motion, um, which is supposed to enhance the flow of energy. It's supposed to be good for healing, meditation, creativity, and self-exploration, which obviously people seek out. And um, they go to these places to, like feel inspired stuff like that and places like the egyptian pyramids stonehenge um sacred temples and cathedrals and stuff like that on the other hand negative vortexes spiral down in a counterclockwise motion which are draining just deplete your energy and all energy (laughs) oh you mean this week In humans, it's believed to cause health problems, including nightmares, disorientation, depression, confusion, and sometimes even visual and auditory hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's They're also said to cause electrical instruments to malfunction, um, which is why a lot of people believe that the Bermuda Triangle um, has, like, negative energy vortexes since, like, planes and, like, compasses and stuff like that just stop working. Yeah. There's also, apparently Easter Island is also a negative, um, but I know, right? It doesn't make any sense. I know. Anyway, um, (laughs) electronic readings in Alaska have found large concentrations of magnetic anomalies, some of which have disrupted compasses to the point that they're as much as 30 degrees off. And, And there are some search and rescue workers who have reported having auditory hallucinations, disorientation, and lightheadedness. But it is important to say... All of that can be affected by the weather and exhaustion and, and allergies. And, allergies. <laughs> and there's no proof that energy vortexes are real. I just want to yeah. put that out there. Some places can make people feel more inspired, but a lot of the time that's attributed to like the history behind the place, the people or that the you're beauty. with, the beauty of it. Yeah. Like, Stuff like that. Yeah. No, I was about to say, actually, a lot of search and rescue officers, no matter where you're at, experience the same. Exactly. So, you know, uh, there were actually two shows about the Alaska Triangle. There, there's Alaska Monsters, which obviously focuses more on the creatures living in Alaska. Um, mm-hmm. They talk about Bigfoot. They talk about the Kushtaka. They talk about a bunch of wild animals and stuff like that. And then there's the Alaskan Triangle, which focuses more on all of the weird stuff, which there were some things that I didn't even touch on in here because I didn't think they really, like, had anything to do. To do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Alaska monsters seem to think that it was mainly wild animals and maybe Bigfoot having to do with the disappearances. And the Alaskan Triangle seemed to decide that the most scientific answer was just wilderness. Um, Yes getting lost and succumbing to the elements yes but what every single source that i found just completely skipped over didn't even mention didn't have a single like not even a single mention of was 
So <laughs> while these things are like super interesting and add to the mystery and intrigue surrounding the Alaska Triangle, none of them mentioned that a lot of these 16,000 people were likely indigenous and people of color. Like what? Not a single one. Um at all mentioned like anything about the people who are actually going missing in this area okay that sounds like a um a huge mm -hmm. oversight yeah but also like it sounds like more it sounds like a moral issue it definitely is because i was going through it and i was like well this is alaska there are large populations of indigenous people in these areas and yet none of them are talking about MMIW, um, mm -hmm. none of them are talking about, like, uh, human trafficking, sex trafficking, nothing like that. Yeah. So when I was researching the statistics for MMIW in Alaska, I stumbled upon a podcast called Social, Social Justice Weirdos. I love it. I think, I think we might follow them on Instagram or they follow us, one of the two. I don't know. Let me check. Well, they follow good people, and we should follow them. No, we don't follow oh. each other. I think there's uh, just another podcast that I was thinking of. Whatever. We should. We should. Anyway, the episode was fantastic, and I actually subscribed because they handled the topic really well, and they seem like awesome people. So, in the episode, it's actually the first episode, titled Bigfoot and MMIW, the hosts, uh, Lenny and Charlie, talk about the amount of sex trafficking done in more rural areas with vulnerable populations and primarily areas with indigenous people. And because Alaska is so close to Canada, it's so easy to get in and out of the country. Yeah. So easy. Like, you saw that line, like, how it's right there. It's to, right there. to be fair, it's probably easier to get into, into Canada than it is to get into the U.S. from Alaska. Yeah, it literally is. Yeah. Literally, there's only a tiny space where you can go around, and I'm not even sure because I don't live there. <laughs> uh, Lenny also mentioned that because of this, indigenous women face higher rates of violence and exploitation when compared to other demographics, and that traffickers actually get higher prices for Native people. And I find... It's so interesting that not a single one of the sources that I used mentioned it at all. Well, of course it wouldn't mention it. Because so many sources don't like to mention topics that it's are... It's not as cool when it involves real world shit. Fuck. Yeah. Well, they're sensitive topics too, and they don't want to be... Mm, I'm trying to word. They're trying not to leave out a certain demographic. Republicans? Which... <laughs> <laughs> people who don't care i don't yes it's just like yes it's so dumb and i find more and more often while researching stories for this podcast that so much of what's like chalked up to be a mystery thought to be a cryptid or native legend is deeper roots than we think and it really bothered me that none of them mentioned mmiw at all despite the increasing number of indigenous people who go missing or who are murdered see it like yeah so back on topic no uh if you want to educate yourself more on the topic okay. or if you want yes. to donate um i'm gonna list a few places that you can do that really quick there's the national indigenous women's resource center which is a native-led nonprofit organization dedicated to ending violence against native american or Native Women and Children, which has resources and takes donations. The website is niwrc.org. There's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA, whose mission is to bring the missing home and to help the families of the murdered cope and support them through the process of grief and more. You can visit their site uh, and donate at mmiwusa.org. And then there's Alaska Native Women's Resource Center, which is dedicated to strengthening local tribal government's responses through community organizing efforts, advocating for the safety of women and children in their communities and homes, especially against domestic, domestic and sexual abuse and violence. Their website is aknwrc.org, and you can donate by going to their helpful links page. Okay. 
And that was the Alaska Triangle. <laughs> Ta-da. I actually really appreciate those uh, resources because... Yeah, a lot of them have a lot of, um, like, statistics. Um, there are resources for anyone who, like, needs help, who is in a, like, dire situation that they need help getting out of. And then just info for anybody who just wants to learn. Yes. And donate. Yes, yes, 100%. Because I am looking at the National Indige- Indigenous women's resource uh, center right now the first one that you mentioned Mm -hmm. and just their website is so beautifully laid out and it has so much information yeah there is a lot there's 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 a lot so if anyone is interested please go check it out yes definitely do um and on that note if you all enjoyed that if you didn't um you know the drill check us out like us (laughs) (laughs) follow us (laughs) follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Miss and Misfortunes. Or Twitter at Miss Misfortune, or you can search for us using our full name, Miss and Misfortunes will pop up. Also, please send us an email to MissAndMisfortunes at gmail.com. We would really love to get in the habit of doing listener stories. However, we've not really gotten a whole lot of response, and we really would like to have a response from you guys. And also, please check out our website, mitsandmisfortunes.com. I'll hopefully be adding a add your story here soon. Oh, okay. Button. That's cool. Yeah. Our, <laughs> hopefully. Theme music, hopefully. <laughs> our theme music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Adkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And thanks so much for listening, guys. Thank you, thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.